All right, this is Jed Banger's Ball. I'm your host, Jed Mayhew. Thanks for listening. Today's show, record producer Tom Monahan. You've heard his work with Devendra Bonhart, Vetiver, Fruit Bats, and countless others. Uh, so we thought we'd have Tom come down and uh, help us soundproof the uh, podcast studio. But we'll get into that later. So thanks for listening, and here's our talk with Tom Monahan. No, I can hear people talking. We're, we're, yeah, I can hear people talking, but not uh, uh, in the in the headphones, though. No, just outside. You said you said that you had one of these microphones. I wanted to get one at one point because they're supposed to be good on guitar cabinets. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I heard that. Like, um, what's the one that uh, Paul McCartney always uses? Like, it's like uh, uh, RE twenty. Oh yeah, yeah. That's another one. There's all sorts of like. Like broadcast microphones are really good for rock and roll sort of stuff. But you said that you got one of these as like this brand was one of the first things that you got. Oh, uh, when I was a kid, the first thing I ever bought when I was (laughs) fifteen, I went to some dude's house in like New Jersey where I was living at the time, and I got a, uh, I got a a, like a keyboard, like a Roland synth, and I got a little Heil mixer, the name of this company. And I got this like purple chrome mixer that I still have in the studio. Was it like a was it like a seventies one or something? Yeah, it's yeah. like you see. I think if you go online, I think there's like pictures of maybe it's like Santana, their keyboard player, has it as a sub mixer. It's awesome. Distort, <laughs> it distorts really well. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's crazy. I mean I know a lot about. I mean not a lot about it, but I've heard of like uh, you know people using the preamps or whatever in a mixer. Or running through a mixer to get like a distorted oh, yeah. sound of yeah. guitar or vocal or yeah yeah totally that's I mean, just like a classic. The, the first fuzz tone is uh, just a broken channel uh, in a mixer. Song, well, I can't even remember the name of the song. Some country song, and it just has this massive fuzz that comes in in the middle of it. It's like a kind of a normal song, but when they take the lead, it's super blown out fuzz, and it was the mixer channel was messed up. Right, it's like poking. Uh, Poking holes in the speaker cabinet or something, yeah. something weird, like yeah. some early. Everybody just wants to do things to mess shit up. Discovery <laughs> yeah. of like dirty guitars or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 the the whole thing. It's whatever you can do to get something that's different. Sometimes. I think I think that uh, I'm trying. I was trying to remember earlier, but I think the first time I maybe I met you was when you lived on Hyperion. Yeah, right. Didn't you we, live on Hyperion, right? I did, right when we moved to LA in like 2005. And you guys, 2007 or something. And you had your studio there? Yeah, upstairs in the attic. I came over and you were you were recording uh Devendra 
Bonhart's record, I think. Or was it? It was probably just after that because I was at that. It was weird because like everybody. Um, or was every, it Vashti Onion? No, that would have been that would have been later. But it was a, a we did this weird session with Devendra and Juana Molina. Were you there during that? Uh, that might have been it. Yeah. yeah, that was a real freak show. That was awesome. <laughs> Maybe that's why I was invited over. <laughs> Probably it was crazy. I mean, we were doing this session, and like uh, Juana Molina and, and like uh, someone had asked, like you know, we had to arrange this whole thing with like Juana Molina and Devendra and Andy from Vetiver, and like we had the. I was the only person who lived in L.A. at that point, I think, and you know, everyone would come and stay at my house, and so. We, it was kind of this weird center point for things. And I just remember that we set up all this stuff, and Juana was um, – do you know her? Juana no, Mar- I don't. She, I, well, she's, I, I know the name. Yeah, she's on Domino. She's amazing. Right. And um, <clears throat> she was, like, rehearsing for a tour, and we were recording stuff. And I just remember that we were all – that people were playing. There was, like, David Coulter, who plays with, like, Tom Waits and stuff. All these people were there. It was super nuts. Everyone's, everything's set up. And Devendra just appeared out of nowhere. He was late by, like, hours and hours and hours. And he showed up with, like, a French film crew, like, or a television crew or something. Suddenly there were all these French guys with TV cameras, like, like just crawling around on the floor. And I've always wanted to see that footage because it was really amazing. And yeah, that was just, I mean, and was he wearing a dress when he showed up? Was he, no, was he but on? he was, but I didn't understand because it was a, a blur. And I think, I think, um, <clears throat> Devender was singing in Spanish at one point. And I wasn't paying attention and Juana kept laughing. And I was like, what, what's, why are you laughing? She's like, cause Devender's just like, this is a very serious song for me. And we're singing a duet and, and Devender keeps singing my, my underwear is on fire. <laughs> right. It was. I, I do remember yeah. coming over there and it and it being a pretty like. I had just moved to L.A. and it was. Did a, you come from Seattle? Is that yeah, I came from Seattle and I remember going over there, and I was with Zach Cowie, uh, and we he was headed there and we went together or something. And I remember just walking in, and thinking like, man, this is a really like L.A. experience. That I'm having. I'm so not LA. There wasn't a, well, there wasn't a film crew, but it was just like a lot yeah. of like there was a lot of like weed smoke in the air. There was a sense. lot of acoustic guitars. There's a lot of long hair. There's a lot of people just kind of like sitting around, just like that weren't there to make a record, but just were there. That was kind of what it was like yeah. around that time. But that was it's awesome. I look back on all that very fondly. Yeah, totally. But you you started out. You started out making. You were playing. Were you always in recording, or were you making? You're playing music before. Yeah. Was, well, that was the whole thing. Was I was just like a band person who had recordings gear, and that was how it all kind of happened. Was that um, I sort of was. It kind of being in a band almost grew out of uh, having recording gear. When I was a kid, I like. It's a typical story. I I moved. You know, I moved away from home and. And then I got this crazy job for someone at like 19 to get where I was making a lot. I was making a good amount of money for not when you don't have any bills and stuff. And I was working at a compact disc distributor as a salesperson, just talking to record stores all day long. But it was good money back then. And I just I bought like a four track and, you know, effects processors and all sorts of stuff. And this was like and we would just make a lot of noise just barely play we're just just literally banging on shit all the time and um and then it was 
kind of, you know, from that you start to learn how to play an instrument and realize you want to write songs and stuff like that. Where were you living at the time? I lived in Connecticut. I lived in Sandy Hook. That's where you grew up? Uh, I just bounced around on the East Coast. I came from New Jersey. I went to high school in New Jersey. And what were, what were some of the early bands that you were playing with, though? I mean, it wasn't really much of anything until I was in this band called Monsterland. And uh, in the '90s, when they would sign like anything, we were we got signed. We got signed. When they would sign like, anything, and you yeah, were and we you could like, work as a CD uh, distributor. Yeah, well, I was working at Macy's <laughs> at that point. I mean, I was like, it was kind of a good job. I could get out because I had folded all the quilts. You know what I mean? I could get out early to a show. But um, if you folded fast enough, yeah, if I could... folded fast enough, I could. And there was a phone in the back because I didn't have a cell phone, but there was a phone at like this hidden back register, so I could make phone calls and like call. CBs and tell them that we were gonna, that we could you know we would be there at such and such a time or whatever it was right. ridiculous and um yeah but we had like it was it was cool it was, it was good and we had like a, an enemy single of the week and then you know we got signed to this division of Atlantic and that was like the first time and I took the money that we got a, like a little bit of money from an advance I mean it was still not very much even for those days um and I bought a half inch a track and a mixer and you know we would record in a, in the basement of this house I was living in and and then I just kind of after that band kind of ended I moved to Northampton Massachusetts and um wound up in this crazy house with a bunch of musicians um and uh wound up like just recording people in Northampton and getting a job there like at a recording studio Right. Was that when you you started playing with the Lilies around that? Was that around that time? Yeah, yeah. Because I had always known Kurt Heasley. And, um, well, actually, the thing that was funny was Kurt was the first fan letter I ever sent to anyone. Mm -hmm. Probably really maybe one of two I've sent in my life. And um, and, uh, I was the first fan letter he ever got. And um, and so we we were friends. And and he's, he's you know, he's a, a great, interesting person with a storied history and he's always been that way ever since he had a crazy history when I met him and it, and um, he's just like I've loved you know I, Kurt writes amazing melodies and he's just like his music's amazing and I always kind of wanted to be in Lily's and I got this crazy phone call from him like I'm in Denver I'm living with the Apples in stereo and I gotta make this record like do you want to play bass and blah, 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 and the beats go kind of like this, boom, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, I think I know somebody who, I think I know someone who sounds just like that, and I had done this crazy session with Aaron Spursky, Uh I had done a session with him in Boston at uh, Fort Apache, where we were both, we were both playing on this thing, and uh, so I called up Aaron, and uh, Kurt had this relationship with this guy, Mike Deming, who had a studio called Studio 45 in Hartford, Connecticut. And Mike is a really amazing guy and uh, who taught me a lot. And uh, we just kind of got together and made this record in the summer of 95. It's like 20 years ago. Right. Holy shit. Yeah, crazy. And you told me, I remember you were mixing some stuff or you were recording some stuff for something I was doing at this point at some time. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't remember I what it was. It was a few projects ago or something like that. But, uh, you, you, you told me a crazy story about how you guys wrote or learned the songs or recorded that record. 
where you were running up and down the stairs or something. Oh, God. Well, yeah. I mean, it was like we went in there and Kurt just had these ideas and Mike did an amazing job organizing, like, chaos. It was insane. And I was was upstairs, uh, like... We would, you know, we kind of went through and got drums with Aaron and then did percussion. And this was like, you know, we were doing it analog and there was a ton of submixing. So we would have to keep submixing to make more and more tracks and more and more tracks. And so when we were submixing, basically, I would get a mix on this half inch A track that I had. I would bring it upstairs in this, in this factory warehouse art space gun it was like the colt factory in in uh connecticut that was just surrounded <laughs> surrounded by drug dealers and um i was on the fifth floor and i had this crazy view and i would be up there like trying to write and learn bass parts and there would be songs that would just have huge empty sections that would just have aaron like just tapping on a snare drum as the, there was no click track it was just aaron like banging on something and um and it would stop, and I would just be like, I don't know what's going to come. And I would just hear, like, Kurt would just be humming. The guide mix would just be Kurt humming. and Because and he knew that that was that was good, that I was making a mix and that I was doing it this way. He would sing things like, sucks to be you. Right. Because <laughs> I would just like, <laughs> be sitting there waiting to get through, like, 32 bars of, like, Aaron hitting the side of a snare drum and Kurt babbling <laughs> i mean like how long did it take to record the record we did it you know strangely enough we did it all in like 35 days which was sort of amazing to write and record the this is a record called better can make your life better right which you know is some people will know it's really tough to actually it's kind of tough to track down it's sort of lost and you know it was wound up on some sub label of sires so it's just trying to re-release it's Kind of, it's so it's been gone forever. But you can still find it if you dig around on the internet because you can find everything. And 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 did you continue to play with with them afterwards and tour and yeah 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 we did another we did a whole bunch of stuff after that. And and so after that, I I also I had another question about your early kind of playing in the band days or whatever because mm-hmm. I also read that you you played on like the silver did you play on the silver Jews record the second one or well what I did because you I, were playing with like Pernice Brothers yeah and who else Scud Mountain Boys well no I, what happened was when I moved to Northampton um, I had this very romantic summer you know you fall in love with a town it's a beautiful place and um. I wound up recording these these guys who would always jam in this house down by the railroad tracks kind of thing. And that was the Scud Mountain Boys. And um, we did this record, and Mike helped mix it. It was great. Uh, it's called Dance the Night Away. And when I moved to Northampton, that house that I moved into, I moved in, uh, went up there to play music with a guy named Zeke Fiddler. But um, uh, his roommate was David Berman. Mm-hmm. from silver juice and and uh and so it was just a crew of people and so i wound up doing the scud mountain boys record and knew david and then you know uh kind of was in that pernice zone and then david asked me to work on uh, natural bridge right mm-hmm. and then and so then that 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 record never came out that version or what happened with that natural bridge yeah the oh. well you re- okay you recorded it but there was another version that they recorded that didn't get put out or well, well am i making this up no natural bridge came out on drag city right but uh but the lilies record that we were talking about before actually has two versions okay there's the original like let's mix it super fucking fast <laughs> version and then strangely enough for a record called better can make your life better 
um, there is a re-recorded version, and that's sort of the secondary version where they went back in and replaced like samples with some. You know, like we had, like we just had like a shitty Roland sampler for trombones, and so we went back in. Uh, Mike went back in and redid like the trombones with real trombones, and the, some of the songs got cleaned up. And because like I read that. there was an original version of that Natural Bridge record that got sort of destroyed. Well, it's possible that that could have happened. I mean, if there, who knows with Berman? You know what right. I mean? Like because apparently really, he like, like had walked out at some point, and they finished like a pavement record in the in the time that he. It's totally. Possible. I'm just getting this off the internet. So I, who knows? He I may mean, be updating the Wikipedia site. It, it's possible. I, I I haven't been to the Natural Bridge Wikipedia site uh, probably ever. So um, I could imagine something like that happen. I I do remember that David made us these like beautiful librettos that um, had all the lyrics for the record and um, and drawings, you know, for each song, and there were notes on ideas that he had it's like one of the most beautiful things that i've ever had in front of me to work with when you're trying to unpack someone's world and their ideas and everything but david numbered all of them and we had to turn them all back in at the end of the record oh wow yeah we, you, we couldn't keep them wow but for the time while i had them well i had that that uh i didn't have them i had just my own but uh it was really, it was really amazing. But yeah, he also couldn't sleep during that record, so he, it was he was a total insomniac. And so day after day would go, and we'd be like, "David, did you get any sleep?" And it was no. And so we were all trying to like become one hive mind and take sort of the same sort of, you know, sedatives and everything like that. And nothing. I just had horrible, horrible dreams. So you go from Kurt Heasley. To David, David Berman. Berman. Yeah, I can yeah, I can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're I mean, I have always every time I've been around you or when we when I've worked with you on something, you've always been a very uh kind of even keeled sort of guy. Oh, or normal mm-hmm. comparatively. So yeah, maybe that's I can, I get that. Maybe yeah. that's, you know, what these people need. Because then someone has to remember to hit record. That's usually that. Yeah, I, I stopped smoking a lot of weed when I had to work more. <laughs> that's pro- that's <laughs> when the, I became responsible. That's your main job yeah, is to be the guy that I, actually. I'm just, yeah. Well, no, that that's a, that is it. Because sometimes people just need a facilitator. I mean, sure. That's really kind of the main thing that it feels like most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. So okay. So how do you get from there to Los Angeles and start breaking away from being in bands to actually focusing more on? You know, being um, would work- you call yourself an engineer or producer or? Well, I think I think I have to kind of say that I'm a producer because I don't I don't really do like engineers in their truest form. You know, they're really amazing because they're technically super incredible. You know, they're incredible people who can fix things and they, you know, they're they're making sure everything is really working and gain stage correctly. And I mean, not all of them, but I'm just saying that engineering is a real art and it's a real skill. And I don't really get asked to do that so much. Like people don't usually wind up in a room with me because they, you know, just want, want me to make a sound. And I'm usually in there because there's some sort of collaborative process that I'm part of in terms of discussing what we're trying to do and trying to find, I'm trying to find a way to, you know, you, you could say that engineers do the same thing. Like, you know, they're just trying to find a way to get the sound that people are hearing in their heads. But I think um, my process and the times I've been working with people, I, was, I did this because I was in a band and, like, we never had any money and we just had gear and there were records to be made and things to be done and we just did them and we did them as a group and we talked about things we were doing. And I like 
groups of I like when groups of people are trying to record and stuff and so I kind of wound up being the cat herder of everyone you right know? right so um so I think engineers sometimes are you know that's when you know I think in its truest form like that's when someone's just asking you can you come in and please do this and maybe it's I'm just too opinionated for that or something like that I just but I just always I'm, I'm more I'm, I'm I like the I like the unpacking of that you know making taking something abstract so as a producer you're, you're more collaborative with the with the yeah. band you know yeah totally. because there's the idea of I'm like the 70s guy. rock producer or whatever or <laughs> yeah. you know uh yeah, the svengali yeah it all. exactly yeah. that that's kind of helping to write songs or or to right. arrangements well, that can be part of it i mean that is that is you know that's all that can be a lot of what's going on you know because the songwriting process nowadays with you know when everyone's working i mean it was that way anyways with analog to analog with, or digital you know, the songwriting process happens like in throughout the entire recording process. People are always chopping things up and rearranging them and stuff like that. So that happens. When you're recording a band now, so do you have an engineer with you? No, it's just me. So that's that's You're filling both of yeah, those roles then. I kinda that's the thing is that I think I kinda I kinda do whatever is you know, whatever someone needs me to do and I'm comfortable in those in those roles. Like sometimes, you know, people really need uh they need someone who's going to tell them kind of what to do and, and sort of structure the experience and the whole project. And that I, that I do from time to time. And then there are people who just need someone to like, you know, just make the technology invisible and make it so it's more like a hang and you're just doing stuff. And that's also, that's, you know, that's also a lot of what goes on, you know? And, I guess we I kind of glossed over it. I guess I so you got how did you get out to L.A. Then I wanted to, and was, I'll come back to this recording stuff because sure. I'm more interested in that yeah, as well. But it was just it was through uh, my wife Shirley Halpern, right? Yeah, and she daughter. got you that bass too that you have. Yes, she did. I was uh, I was touring with Pernice Brothers and I was playing this Rickenbacker that was falling apart on me, and um, <clears throat> and uh, she through. However, whatever means she sort of pulled this off, showed up at a show with a 72 Fender P bass and, uh, and gave it to me. And, and you I, pretty much use it on like every recording, it's right? It's there all the time, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's really, it's a, it was not just some, you know, random bass. She put a lot of thought and energy and effort into finding it. It's interesting because I think about that a lot too, just like there's sort of like, the one piece of gear that you have yeah. to have whenever you're making a record or mm -hmm. something like that, you know, like if it's a pedal or it's a guitar or it's an amp or whatever, or a problem like for me, which is, it seems to be several pieces. Of gear. <laughs> 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 you start collecting them. Yeah. For, yeah, exactly. But no, no, I know what you mean because there's just, there, well, there, it's, it's, there's, is that thing with, with certain drum kits or certain guitars or certain amplifiers and they're just musical. They just sound good with whatever, you know, it's, it's not like certain things are work better for certain purposes and they are working this sort of nook and cranny. And then there, there is the magic one that you pull out and it just sounds great on everything. And it sounds musical on everything. And those actually, those pieces, those instruments, you know those things they have they really do have life and everybody's got the you know everybody's got the instrument or the amp or you know whatever they're doing they have that piece of technology that works for them that they can make speak and um 
and those it's always great to see what people bring in because you know something that you know works for them may not work for the next person but you know the, what we're talking about i guess is really the the instruments that sort of work for everyone but right. i love seeing i just like seeing what people do it's like it's amazing you know everybody does something infinitely better than you will ever do and that's just kind of cool because everyone's going to come in with something that's truly their own you know sure and you 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 wanted to the idea initially was to to be able to record out of your house that is that always what you wanted to do or I, i think it was well it was definitely built out of the you know the economic necessities of um having to make records and not really having a space. And, you know, I, I did go around and make a lot of records in people's living rooms. And I do, I really like that, you know? And, um, I don't, I didn't just, I have always had some place to record where I lived and it's just gotten slightly more and more involved as I went along and things became more serious. And I kind of had to, uh, you know, I had to have some place to finish stuff cause I couldn't just, and I I don't like just sitting in a studio sometimes with the clock running. Um, I, you know, I think that's a, it's always, it's good to have that be part of the process, but um, I usually just want to get up and go home and go to my weird little hidey hole with all my stuff. Sure. You know, sure. I think everybody does. Yeah. I, it, can you talk about um, recording up at the hangar in Sacramento and oh, your, yeah. your relationship with those guys? Because we're actually going up, to their new place. Are you going to Stinson? Yeah. Oh, in right on. a couple of weeks to work with Woodhouse. Oh man. Well, oh, are you going to go to the, you're going to go to, you're going to the Stinson place to do that? Or are you going to, to sack? Cause he has his, you know what? I don't know. I think you're going <laughs> Woodhouse, where, as far as I don't I know had, where we're recording as, our album at, as far as I knew, but I don't really know. Wherever Woodhouse I, says we are recording. He, I think he has his own joint. Like the, it's like, it is what the hangar mutated into. Exactly. Yeah. And that's in Sacramento. Yes. Right near the homeless shelter. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I asked him this morning if we needed to get a place to stay or if we just stayed in the studio. So maybe that's where we're staying is at that shelter. It's possible. It's yeah. a whole, it's a massive block of facilities. Sounds awesome. Yeah. No, it's gonna I've be, heard, it's, never, The weather's going to be nice too, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. I've never seen, oh man. Yeah, I've <laughs> suffered. I've, I've, been in Sac- I've been in so many cold Sacramento winters and blistering, blisteringly hot hot sack summers with the swamp cooler and that massive space that no longer exists. Yeah. The hangar was in this, um, it was, you know, it was what it, what it was named. It was just this giant space in a warehouse in Sacramento with a skate ramp in it and like, and a stage. It had been a club called like the vortex or something like that. At one point it was like a, like a Polish American hall or something. That yeah. It's crazy. I mean, we made a record out of there. I, I made a record uh, with a band called the intelligence there. And it's like uh heckler magazine was out of there too. I think oh, yeah, skateboarding that's magazine. That's, yeah. Cause that was what John. Yeah. It was John Bacigalupi's place. And now he has a couple of different places, a place in Stinson beach and which is awesome. And the place in Sacramento uh, that Woodhouse is at most of the time, and that's smaller than the hangar was. But I mean, the hangar was enormous. You know, like on breaks, I would just ride a bike around the live room. It was huge, and um, we did a ton of stuff there. It was basically what happened was I met John when I was touring with Pernice Brothers. We played some crappy blues bar in Sacramento, and John came out, and um, and uh, I met him, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and. Uh, 
after we tracked Cripple Crow, the Devendra's record, sure. we needed some place to mix, and Devendra and Noah and Andy and I, we were all working on it, and like Dev said, I just want to, you know, we should do it someplace not in Los Angeles, and we should do it someplace near the water or whatever. And so I was just emailing with John, like, because he, you know, John uh, is the publisher of Tape Op Magazine. And I said, hey, do you know any places in California that would fit this bill? And he was like, yeah, you should come up to my place. And um, and he sent me this beautiful picture of the Sacramento River, which I then spent the next, like, six years at the hangar, and I have no idea where that photo <laughs> is from. And, it's um, nowhere near there. Nowhere, I know that. But. Yeah, and I have no – so I, I, wound up in, I wound up in this place. I like that the, those guys meant, like, the ocean or something, too. Like They all trusted me. I mean, that's what's Or, so like, insane. a lake that's or something, the not the Sacramento the, River. I just, I, you know, he sent you a photo of the L.A. River. <laughs> exactly, and I just – we went up there. But it was awesome, and it was a great place, and they had crazy gear, and it was super cheap, and we all crashed in the live room, and it was like, it was a, it was, it was really awesome. It was like this total like weird warehouse that just was on the edge of this this little spot in town by the railroad tracks, and you know it was really inexpensive, and it had the most insane, insane gear, like the best recording. You could just do crazy stuff. Like I don't want to record. Okay, for the next song, let's not use any gear past nineteen seventy. Everything's sure. gonna be pre nineteen seventy. No problem. They had it. Right. And Bryce Gonzalez, who you know is is here in L.A. now and has a company called Highland Dynamics. He's making compressors. He's doing all this awesome shit. Bryce was the tech. He the tech slash de facto studio manager. He ran his shop out of the front. He was like building amps and stuff and Bryce could fix anything. And he was super rad to work with. And, um, and we just did all sorts of stuff. It was super, it was so much fun. I mean, that's the whole thing is you could go up there and it was like super cheap. You could be there for a long time. Sacramento is this weird town that there's nothing to do. There's nothing going on, which except is, but there's great, there's good places to eat. There's good can, places to eat, you know? And it was, it was really amazing. And John just was like the greatest person. Like he would just facilitate like anything. And I just, I loved it. You know, he just, he's the, just so great, always so enthusiastic. And, you know, he's a skater and he just like, like, Somebody asked me once what the the ethos of the hangar was, and I don't, you know, I still don't know if this is the best way to describe it, but I just always said it was build the ramp. Like he, John's a skater who would build ramps, and then we build ramps and make studios, and that's like, you know, he just had that thing. It was like, if you want to skate, build a fucking ramp. You want to record, record with whatever's in front of you, and if you can, get better and better gear. And he made this weird space. Just liked having people around. It was awesome. Why why did it end up getting shut down? Well, you know, I mean, it's just like anything that, you know, the, the city gentrified sort of up to the doorsteps of the hangar and then it kind of died down. But during that time, you know, people were thinking of, whoa, how can I use this space and what can I do with it? And, you know, the developers got involved and they're basically, they just, you know, they, they're, I don't know what they're going to make there. Like, you know, a boutique muffin factory. I don't know right. what the hell's going to go on with condos and a, you know, screen printing place or something. I mean, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. And have you been up there to record anything since then? No, I mean, I don't know where I... I, I haven't been to the new place. Right. Uh, you, you know, John, um, I know that Chris works there all the time. He's an awesome dude. And um, 
he the the place was kind of built around the fact that you know Chris is just working all the time. So, sure. Yeah, and John had enough gear to spread between two studios. So, are you recording anywhere these days besides at your house or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I go to different places here in town, and then I've, I've been in and out of L.A. You know, I spent January and I I kind of I kind of got into this weird thing where. I was bouncing back and forth from here uh, in Stockholm because I've been uh, friends with the Peter Bjorn and John guys, uh-huh. and um, and I was working. Uh, I got asked to do a, a record in Belgium, like uh, it was in like 2013, and I was spent the whole summer in this weird hat factory in the middle of fucking nowhere, Belgium, and um, and it was like it was a uh, it was it was an amazing studio, really cool band, really nice people, and everything, but. At the end of it, um, uh, they just asked me, "Oh, do you want to come? We're making a record. That, you know, do you want to come and hang out?" And like, we're trying to figure things out. So I went to Stockholm and worked a few days with them, and that was fun. And then I did a few more sessions there, and then I I went there in January with Wild Nothing, uh-huh. and um, and started uh, there started the Wild Nothing record in Stockholm. So I've been kind of bouncing around and then people, Bjorn, who's a producer, you know, he came to LA and then I was working with him on a bunch of stuff. And so, um, there aren't any plans to go back right at the moment, but so it's like, but I kind of, you know, it's wherever go to Portland up to Larry's place, like Larry Crane's, uh, place jackpot. You know, that is a really nice place. It's kind of wherever anybody wants, wants me to go. Sure. And I wonder, you know, for people that are trying to like, get in like get into being an engineer or a record producer or whatever you know because kind of this show has turned into like this like guide for teenagers yeah (laughs) break into the music business that's as it's as it's dying uh, Uh, as the rest of the world crumbles around you and the in the everything falls into the ocean which as as the ocean retreats and draws draws siphon gas out of a tank exactly i I think i more it's yeah i feel like i should be teaching more of like a gun safety course at this point uh (laughs) for the uh inevitable zombie attacks as opposed to how to get into the music business but did you did you teach yourself how to use all this fucking gear or like or did you did you ever go to school for recording or anything like that i went for I went for one year uh, to this community college in New Jersey called um, Brookdale, and um, they had a. I did take some recording classes, but no, we didn't spend any time in the studio. It was all, it was all basically just um, like theory and a lot of cutting tape. You know, like cutting uh, quarter inch two track sure. interviews and stuff like that. Um, but the guys there were really cool, and they had this. Um, they sort of, there was a lot of like very interesting forensic listening theory that went on where in the class we had to uh, show up every class with a song that we had listened to that we broke down uh, by form and then we had to write down uh, what how the instruments, what the instruments were. When what, they, what's form, though, real like, quick? Like, just like, oh, intro, verse one, ah, verse, okay. gotcha. you know, pre-chorus, chorus, you know, little solo. Like, however you wanted to write it down. They were, it was, wasn't music theory. Gotcha. It wasn't like you have to write it out in terms of the chords. It's just like beginning, verse one, and we, you know, in in its simplest form. And, and we had to kind of write down... Um, what the instruments were and then when they came in and like where they were, we had to write a, 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 like a, 
you know, thing from left to right where everything was panned and like what effects, you know, what effects we thought they were using and was it distorted? Was it clean? Like just, you know, we, you had to describe what you were listening to. It was really amazing. Cause like, you know, it was really fun. You just, just pick whatever you want, but you had to bring the song to class in case you were called on. And then he, you know, the instructor would basically play the song and then ever, and then kind of, critique your analysis of the song and it got into some really interesting conversations about like you know people would say oh well they're using like you know they're using some digital delay and a harmonizer on this part and he's like the song was recorded in 1959 <laughs> they didn't have any of it how do you think how they, do they how got do that they sound? do it yeah. and then he would go into the, the you know the tape techniques and everything so sure. it was it was really it was really interesting because you know you just kind of learned uh, it was a it's a now, that is uh, usually a conversation that happens when people are, you know, figuring out what they want to do when they're recording. And so here's this song, and sometimes it's like, oh, I like this sound of it, but not so much a song, or I like this energy of it, and and um and that was that was the only that was, that was really it. Yeah, and it was just like just you know Mike Deming at Studio Forty Five was that was a. I went to that university pretty much, and Mark Miller at Slaughterhouse. Because I, I think about those kinds of things a lot, like as far as people that are getting into home recording now, or just there's so much, you know, I mean, computers and things like that, and recording directly to your iPad or whatever the fuck it is, or your phone, or yeah. you know, um, and you know how the art, or it's almost more like science as far as. A recording studio and like what you're talking about people that are recording music in the 30s and 40s and they're getting these weird sounds it's based on like sound projection and placement of mics and you know what the room the dimensions of the room and things like that and things that are happening in between the sound waves and the microphones etc cetera, etc cetera. it's all very mystical it's all very mystical but you know when it when it gets down to like someone just turning their iphone on in the practice space and recording a song and then emailing that to the record label or whoever, or just putting it straight up on the internet. And then that's, that's what's exciting about things though. In a a way it's just like, it's more than ever. It's about having an idea and something to say and having some kind of energy that you're transmitting on a human level. You know, you can do everything you can, you can make all sorts of stuff, um, you know, there's so many tech, you know, there's so much technology that allows you to express yourself in in terms of sound making. And, you know, you can just get a bunch of old cell phones and go do some rad stuff, but it really does help. Ultimately, if you have, you know, it's like if you're, if you're feeling something and you're trying to find a way to communicate that, you know, but that's what is so amazing about it is that like you know you you hear something that somebody recorded on an iphone and you're like okay yeah this is really scrappy or whatever and then you hear something and you're like what the fuck that's fucking perfect it sounds amazing and no one is ever no one in with no amount of gear in the greatest studio in the world they're never gonna get the feeling of that moment captured like right. an iphone sound kind of amazing sure you know that's the whole thing about it that's crazy i mean like i I was talking about the other night with my buddy i was saying how recording the in your practice space to the iphone if you place it in the right spot or whatever you have to move it around it sounds great it sounds like what we were trying to do with like a four track like 15 years ago and trying to get this like really dirty don't do it with one fucking put five of them in the room and just have the drummer click the fucking song off and line them up on your computer 
You know what I mean? Like, just put it, just, you, you, everyone has an iPhone, just turn them all on and email it to one guy, line them all up, and then you have your multi track. I mean, it was like, there's like a, I, I was like, I think it was like Deerhoof did a record like mm-hmm. that where they had Pro Tools free. It was only eight tracks and they had all these laptops and they just, they wound up, you know, it's just, there's so much you can do. They're just, it's, you know, why do it on one iPhone? Do it on like seven. I know, but Tom, you're, you're trying to put yourself out of a job here if you, or unless you show up with I'm like just, a briefcase full of iPhones. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, that's the whole thing though is that's like if you get hung up on that kind of stuff, it's not that. It's that it's more like because the job ultimately at some point is just is helping, you know, is helping people organize all of that stuff into making some kind of, not statement, but some just it, you don't have much time there's such little space to communicate to people in the world because things move really quickly and the, your window of opportunity is very short. So you have to make sure that, you know, what you have, what you have to say will come at them, that will grab them and draw them in. It's like people don't take the time to engage in, in, in things. And so that's, you know, just organizing that into some sort of coherent or non-coherent statement. If they don't want to do that, that can be just as valid too. But like at least, you know, kind of people need help, you know, looking at what they're doing and having, figuring out what it is sometimes that they're trying to do. And um, so, yeah, somebody's got to mix all those iPhone recordings (laughs) and edit them because fucking people in bands are, they're crazy and lazy and unorganized and like... Yeah, I'm just a janitor, man. I like it. What's next? Yeah. What, are, what are you working on now? Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm finishing this uh, record with these guys called Horse Thief. They're from Oklahoma City, which is a... I love Oklahoma City. What a freak show. Never it's been so, there. Driven through Oklahoma a few times. but it's gr- I like Oklahoma City. It's really... It's an interesting place. And so I've been doing that with them. And they they were out here, and now I have to finish that. And then I've... Um, just it's a bunch of stuff. I have a friend of mine's coming. Um, this woman, Mary Epworth, um, who um, lives outside of London. We've been friends for a long time, and she's coming over, and we're doing like her record and her dude's record back to back, and um, and then then I don't know. I mean, so it's nice. I mean, you get to like people that you enjoy their company you know you get to do these projects with them or I'm go to trying. them or they come to you yeah. or, and you know it's like having these extended house guests that you at the end of it's that is the way there's a something you've created together yeah it is it's like that is the way it's been for so long our house is maybe a little less of grand central station than it used to be but um it's still that way and um yeah i mean i I think the thing that's been the craziest thing about having done this for a while and having it go from being, you know, um, this youthful um, inertia towards wanting to do something into um, seeing things that you do go out of the world and suffer various fates and um, into people asking you to do that with them and then it becomes then then there's this job aspect to it sometimes too it's just is that at the end of the day i just love this stuff i don't like i can't help it it's like i've just i don't know what else i would do i don't know what else i'm built for well i think we spent a day recording with you one time and you pulled out all the stops and then we bought you dinner afterwards and that was was pretty much that was (laughs) yeah well that was i i you know that's it's very true there was there was a, a tape op 
uh, an early tape up uh, when it was still a fanzine and was some guy, I wish I could remember his name, he was an engineer slash producer slash recording enthusiast from uh, Philadelphia and he was just wearing a sign that said, we'll record for food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was I, I, yeah, that was a, that was a that happened for a long time. I think that job or like, you know, music video director or anything like yeah, is like get the get the money up front or i don't know so it's, yeah i mean when you it is it is interesting it's funny when is it this burrito is cool right <laughs> i'm like that's yeah. cool yeah it's we're good we're good gotta, right yeah that's we're good with just, this burrito i gotta be just keep me five hundred dollars worth of recording <laughs> this burrito is good though okay cool yeah thanks tom yeah excellent all right. Well, thank you, Tom. Cool. I think on that note, right. um, yeah. again, you're you're here for free again. So um, and helping us record today and letting us know how our gear works and how to soundproof the room earlier. Although we didn't get that recorded on the show, but but uh, but next time it's going to sound even better. Okay. Because we're going to take your advice. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks for. It was fun. <laughs> it's actually hilarious to be sitting here attempting to do something semi-serious. With you. I know. I know that's the weirdest that's thing about this. That's the best this. part. I had to come down just for that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, you know, I I should have I could have came up with a game for you, and I ran out of time. I I owe you a game, some sort of right. something silly, but we'll figure it out. Are you still in the valley though? Or do you, I am. Okay, yeah. I thought you. And that was this, I love it when we end the show and then we just keep talking about where where you live at now, and mm-hmm. you're because you, you were going to move at one point though. We were thinking about it, but I just you know. I don't know. We have like a good spot. We're sort of tucked away. It's very quiet, and yeah, I don't really have. It's an interesting spot because you've seen the place. We sure. don't have. We don't really have neighbors behind us. It's right. good. It's really good. Well, I'll come over and we'll grill something here soon. That sounds excellent. All right. Thanks All right. a lot, Tom. Cool. All right. That was Tom Monahan. I hope uh, you learned something about record producing. How it gets made, difference between a producer and an engineer, which I always wondered. I uh, just want to say thanks to Tom. I want to say thanks to Green Street. And this is not a pipe for sponsoring the show. As always, we're recorded here in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Before we go, we just want to say that our thoughts are out there to the friends of Sammy Winston, BG Rex. Uh, thanks to Liz Cooley and Permanent Records, who we had on episode one. We're setting up a fund for those guys. Uh, I'm sure you can find it. We'll post a link on Facebook when we post the show up here, too. But if you can donate some money, that'd be great. And a little bit helps. Everyone, be safe out there. Tell your friends you love them. Give them a hug. This is Jed Banger's Ball. Thanks for listening.